Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Just 
Fridays Radio, and welcome to another awesome, great episode broadcast of the show. I am your host, I'm Leticia Wong, and with me is the very lovely first-time mom, Melissa Talu. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) The very sleepy mom. (laughs) Oh, I know how that is. Uh-huh. And and the, the good part is it never goes away. <laughs> uh, I, that's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, well, I mean, she's night, definitely worth it, and yeah, we're we're excited. It's great, great time adjusting to being her mom and to just the whole transition and um, the motherly instincts that are in me that. Um, that God puts there, and it's just, it's so neat to discover that um, on a day-by-day basis, so it's really cool. Well, we are so happy. I am so happy. I got to see a bunch of babies last night, too, because Thomas and I went to the Rachel House Benefit Dinner last night in Kansas City, Missouri, and Uh it was huge. I had not expected uh, 400 people to be there, but it was huge. And Abby Johnson was the guest speaker that night, uh, the keynote speaker, okay. and she was phenomenal. She, I mean, the, the information that she related to us as uh, pro-life, interested individuals in saving the lives of those who are not yet born was, is indispensable. Her, her inside knowledge about how uh, people think when they're inside the abortion industry is is a huge insight basically she she talked about her story she does this a lot i think it's you can find it in her book unplanned Uh um the day that that she she talked a lot about the day that she decided she could not work for planned parenthood anymore and it was completely unexpected uh she had been called to assist in an abortion something that Uh she had really never done before I mean, she worked at Planned Parenthood, but she never actually participated in an actual abortion. And so she had been told to operate the ultrasound while the doctor killed the baby. Mm-hmm. And she said she was not really prepared for what she was going to see. Uh, although, you know, in her mind, she's like, yeah, I, yeah, I know what I'm going to see. <laughs> She was yeah. what she had done before was piece together uh, the aftermath of the abortions, and so she had mm-hmm. seen lots of lots of dead children. But what she saw that day was a baby fighting for his life, and she could tell it was a boy, and she could tell that in the womb this. 13-week-old 13, 13 fetus in the womb was literally trying to get away from the abortion instrument, mm-hmm. you know, as, as as helpless as he was. And I think that it, for her, that kind of stopped her in his tracks. That stopped her in her tracks, and she, she said the, the worst part of it wasn't the, the abortion that was happening for her. It was the part where she couldn't do anything. She was frozen. And, you know, that was, you know, one of these days she's going to be on our show to tell her story about that, and that's going to be a phenomenal day. 
uh, where we we just kind of understand, you know, that this these are the things that happen on a daily basis. Um, but I wanted to thank her for her story. Um, that being out there because as many times as you can read it again and again in her book or listen to her speak because I've heard her speak before uh, it mm-hmm. the shock of it never really wears away I don't think it wears away for her either and um, I, I feel for her every time she speaks about it she has to relive that moment um, but she mm-hmm. thinks it's worth it for her it is worth it because Pregnancy resource centers like Rachel House are in direct competition with Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And they need to win. They need to win this competition for the hearts and the minds and the lives of mothers mm-hmm. and children. So with that, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, have you have you heard her speak before? Um, I have. Um not in person. I've I've heard um her speak via webcast before. Um, okay. And um, and I have read Unplanned as well. I mean, I read that. I, I recommend that everyone gets that book. Um, I remember. I think I read it in in a day and a half. I couldn't put it down. So um, it was a very powerful account, like you said, of her experiences working um, in Planned Parenthood um, as a director and um, actually seeing an abortion procedure take place, which caused her to leave. Um, uh, the abortion industry, but also um, what I love about the book is that she um, talks about those who um, were outside her her particular abortion clinic, Planned Parenthood in Texas, um, the pro-lifers who stood out there, you know, during 40 Days for Life campaigns and other campaigns, um, or just throughout the year in general, and the importance of them being there, and the importance right. of their loving attitude towards her and the other workers, because they are the ones who she came to, she came to Sean Carney and those guys with the 40 Days for Life um, uh, College Station, Texas, when she left Planned Parenthood. She went to their office, and her life completely changed around. She found the Lord and all these sort of things. So um, I love that she um, really exhorts um, pro-lifers to, to continue our work and being at these clinics and making our presence known and our voices heard and extending love to these workers because um, we're not only there to save babies, but we're there to reach out to these workers who are in the abortion industry as well. That is right. That is right. Um, I want to um, end that, you know, and give thanks for Abby Johnson as well as get to our scripture and then we'll pray in, in thanks, mm-hmm. um, which is why we, we take so seriously the verse from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, which says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Heavenly Father, you have sent us so many signposts and so many, you almost had to write in the sky to tell us that life is precious and is worth saving and you have sent us person after person throughout the decades since abortion has was made legal in this country to tell us to testify that abortion hurts women it hurts the women that um, 
are working in the industry as well as hurting the women that are receiving abortions. And aside from the knowledge that abortion kills a living human being. So, Father, with with great pleas for your mercy on, on us and to hear our prayers and to have mercy on women who are pregnant in crisis pregnancy, we ask for your intervention. Let the message go through that life is so much better than death and that you will bless when we choose life. And I thank you for our guests today. Help give them just the right words to speak for Pro-Life Fridays and for us too. In your holy son's name, amen. Amen. So there's a lot that's going on. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm so so here. Uh, let's take on a couple of issues that that are happening in the news before we get to our guests. And I'm going to take a minute to congratulate David Sirota. Do you know who David Sirota is? I do not. He is the salon art uh, journalist. I guess I guess you could call him a journalist. <laughs> I guess I could be called a journalist on my worst day possible. David Sirota is a Uh columnist, I should say, for Salon, who was the one who openly wished after the Boston Marathon bombing that the bomber, he hoped that the bomber was a white American. Oh, wow. And and, uh, most people replied all over the net, all over Twitter, all over, like, sick, sick. What a sick thing to say. And I'm like, well, yes, you could say that. But um, I think, though, that he's he's about 30, 40 years late. He got the white, or, well, I guess the nearly white part correct, though. You know, I hope he feels good about that because, you know, this is suspects that we – that the FBI have uh, are, are looking for is is kind of white, you know. Uh-huh. Russian can be considered white the way he meant meant it to be. Yeah. You know, I hope he feels good about that. I really do. But I have to say that that his dream of having a white American bomber was already realized in 1969 in the man uh-huh. who would help launch Barack Obama's political career man by the name of Bill Ayers. Also, it was realized in 1995 when Timothy McVeigh exploded a bomb in Oklahoma City. Unless I looked at the pictures wrong, that looked like some white American to me. So uh, what's missing in Sirota's half-empty glass at this point is saying how many white Americans he would like to see become bombers. And along with that, I would like to know whether or not he would be willing to become one of those white American bombers, since he apparently desires so much after them. Ah, someone on Facebook apparently took issue with me about talking about the bombing today, asking how we can be talking about the reasons for the bombing when no suspect has been caught yet. Well, I didn't announce that we were going to be discussing reasons for the bombing, but that 
setting off bombs with the intent and knowledge to maim and murder people is a pro-life issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that really a tough one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Do we have to explain in elementary terms that bombing is wrong? Bombing hurts people if they are in the way of the explosion. Or should I say, right. boom. So I don't. I'm, I'm thinking that they misunderstood what I what we were going to talk about, and and this bombing is a pro life issue because somebody set off mm-hmm. these bombs with an intent to kill, because they thought some people mm-hmm. don't deserve to live. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the core. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. It's at the core a disregard, regardless of the motives. Um whether it was uh, religiously mo- motivated, politically motivated, nationally re- motivated, whatever the motives are, at the end um, you are they are taking human life. So it does become a life issue regardless of the motives of the individual um, or, their, um, or their particular agenda. Right. So absolutely it's a cause that we should, we should care about. I was going to rip off one of my good friend's radio memes and, and play Guess This Religion with the suspects, but I don't know. I think we can play that game later. <laughs> but it's a very short game. For me, it's a very short game. I don't know. Maybe with the mainstream media, it's a very long game, and they get tired of uh-huh. it. Uh, but we're going to leave that there because I think, I think it's better – that, that I will tell you that I'll do this. Let's talk about the reasons why it wasn't a bombing by conservative Tea Party people on tax day. Because, you know, April 15th was supposed to be tax day. And uh, the media speculated because it was tax day, Tea Party conservatives set off bombs in protest of the government on tax day. Cool. Um, April 15th is tax day, like President's Day is every president's birthday. Mm -hmm. April 15th is the last day you have to file your taxes. It's actually not tax day, it's tax season that ends on April 15th. It's a deadline. Did I just say dead? April 15th Mm -hmm. is dead day, not tax day. Ah, you caught me. Ah. (laughs) The second reason why the Boston bombing isn't a bombing by conservative Tea Party people is that no guns were used. Everyone knows conservatives love and cling to their guns and religion, not bombs. And finally, the third reason. Everyone knows Tea Partiers are racist. And no black people were killed in the bombing. So there you go. 
I'd like to tell Get people that really... What? <laughs> I just said it's a good observation. I know. I Well, you know, just saying. But I, I have a real good just saying. Incidentally, April 15th is also Israel's National Memorial Day for victims of terrorism. Just saying. On to other news on life and death. Jill Stanick wrote a superb bit of history on the now infamous Kermit Gosnell earlier this week. And I will post that I will post that article up on our chat room. If you haven't heard of Kermit Gosnell, I, I don't entirely blame you. It's not your fault if all you listen to is ABC, NBC, CBS, NBC, or CNN. But it is your fault if you don't listen to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Because we have been talking about the baby neck-snipping abortionist from Philadelphia since 2012. Well, little do people know that Kermit Gosnell has been killing babies and harming women for a lot longer than the two days that have been in focus of late. We're going to go all the way back to 1972. This was before Roe v. Wade. Kermit Gosnell participated in a study along with a doctor by the name of Harvey Carmen. And I, I'm going to say Dr. Harvey Carmen and use and since I'm on the radio and I have no camera, I'm putting doctor in air quotes and you'll find out why I did that. So, you know, in your mind, air quote me. Harvey Carmen. And the study was sponsored by none other than Planned Parenthood in which Carmen tried to teach a group of doctors in Bangladesh how to perform abortions. Well, that was in 1972. Later on in that same year, Harvey Carmen and Kermit Gosnell would work together again, this time inside Gosnell's abortion mill in Philadelphia. Fifteen poor black women, I'm sorry, let me be politically correct, young minority women of limited financial means were bused from Chicago to Philly to undergo essentially the same experiment. Well, what was it? Harvey Carmen used these women to test his newfangled wave of the future, nearly hands-free abortion device he invented and cleverly named the supercoil. What's that, you ask? Former Gosnell employee Randy Hutchins testified for the grand jury report on Gosnell, and this is what the report says. I'm actually going to read the second paragraph to you first, and then read the first paragraph to you after that so you can understand exactly what's happening. So this device, the problem, the problem was, this is Randy Hutchins talking, the problem was that they never tested it. They didn't test it on any animals. They never did any other human trials. This was not something that was sanctioned by the FDA. This was something that he decided, he uh, being Gosnell, he and this guy, referring to Carmen, 
decided they were going to use on these women. Okay, now here's the first paragraph. There was a device that he and psychologist Carmen were working on that was supposed to be plastic. Basically plastic razors that were formed into a ball. All right. They were coated into a gel so that they would remain closed. These would be inserted into a woman's uterus. And after several hours of body temperature, it would then, the gel would melt and these 97 things would spring open, supposedly cutting up the fetus. And the fetus would be expelled. That's what the report says. Mm. I want everyone to just take a moment to think about what could possibly happen when 97 spring-loaded razor blades are introduced into a pregnant woman's uterus. Pregnant or not. Wow. But they were introduced into a pregnant woman's uterus. Uh. I'm tempted to give you more than a moment, because apparently it didn't occur to Gosnell or Carmen that anything, I don't know, bloody would happen. And since they're doctors, they should know, right? Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, wait, did I mention that I put doctor in air quotes? Yes, I did. Dr. Carmen did not have a medical license. Now, Harvey Carmen mentioned that he was a psychologist. Um, well, in fact, he didn't even go to medical school. In fact, in the 1950s, he was considered a convicted felon, having spent time in prison for killing a woman while giving her an abortion in a California hotel room using a nutcracker. That was until Governor Jerry Brown pardoned dear Harvey. Harvey Carmen simply attached the letters P, H, and D to his name, somehow I assume associated with a diploma he obtained from a Swiss degree mill. And, um, okay, back to our man Gosnell who Carmen enlisted to insert these brilliant supercoils into uh, women. He was never charged with anything. Even though nine of the 15 women suffered severe injuries, which included Mm -hmm. uh, punctured uteruses, hemorrhages, infections, and retained fetal remains. Hmm, who would have thought? Now, if you'd like to know more about this experience, and I hope you do, I hope we all do, Jill Stanick has provided us with search terms that could be useful, and those words are Mother's Day Massacre 1972, because this took place on Mother's Day weekend in 1972. And the media dubbed it that name, just so you know, not Jill Stanick and not us. So if you haven't learned about Kermit Gosnell, there's an important piece of history that should not be left out of the story. So I'm going to take – so before we take a break, uh, Melissa, do you have any commentary you'd like to offer on these news stories that we've shared? Um, well, yeah, just regarding the, the Gosnell uh, information that you just shared, 
um, this this horrific information keeps coming out daily on a daily basis, and we're just learning more and more and more about this man and um, and his past. And um, he should have been. It's it just it breaks my heart that he was not stopped a long time ago. Um, these poor women that were hurt in 1972, um, nothing was done because they were poor black inner city women. Um, and they were basically bused there um, under false pretenses, not knowing that they were going to be undergoing um, a experimental treatment, which is highly dangerous. And we're seeing the same thing. For all these years, he's continued his practice hurting women um, uh, and, and all these sort of things, and nothing has been done because these women are, uh, for the most part, minority inner-city poor women. And this is this is a big problem for the abortion industry that they're going to have to deal with. Why is it that, that, that the industry that claims to care about the poor, that claims to care about women, why is it that these women get ignored when they are hurt and injured and, um, and die even, lose their lives? Why is this continuing to happen? And so I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how, the abortion industry is going to answer that. How is it that um, they're going to be able to defend um, themselves under this type of cover-up and these actions um, on, on behalf of, of so many abortion providers? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we all like answers, but I'm not really surprised if we all are very frustrated at the end of the day and not getting any answers. <laughs> right. Uh, because... I mean, even even the the most one of the most liberal people on on television, Mark Lamont Hill, came out and said that the reason that Kermit Gosnell's trial so far has not been covered by the media is because they want to ignore it. It was a willful <laughs> ignorance because he makes them look bad. Mhm. He makes them. He makes the he makes the push for this being all about women's rights look very bad because what woman wants to be killed by her abortionist and what woman wants, even if you don't want to keep your baby and you're looking for an abortion, how is it that you like to know that the abortion, the abortionist, the method he used to kill your child was to snip their neck and, and lie about everything <laughs> and then right. treat white women better than black women right so I, I yeah. really think yeah. they're going to work hard to try to cover up a lot of the news but you know thank god we do have honest to goodness reporters going after the real stories Mhm. Um, and they're not necessarily reporters with mainstream media, and I think that's that's the only way. I mean, I have lost total faith in the mainstream media's ability to give us objective truth. And I don't mean truth as in they're trying to teach us truth, uh, but telling us what happens, just doing their job of reporting. Right. So with that, if uh, you're listening online, the number to call in is 760-542-3907 to talk to either the host of Pro-Life Fridays Radio or one of our guests. We're going to be right back um, after the break. 
society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. I do not join in the belief that the African is our equal in brain or in heart. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit. The best way to hate a nigger is to hate him before he is born. American eugenicists were routinely praising Hitler and holding up the Nazi eugenics program as a model for the United States to copy. Non-white races must be excluded from America. The red and black races, if left to themselves, revert to a savage or semi-savage state in a short time. The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. We hope that the restraint of population growth can come about through voluntary means. But if it does not, involuntary methods will be used. There should be national sterilization for certain dysgenic types of our population who are being encouraged to breed and would die out for the government not feeding them. If this movement continues, we soon may be accused of fighting poverty by eliminating the poor and overcoming hunger by removing the hungry. For all their failures, what the eugenics movement had accomplished was to lay the foundation for the next phase of their plan. And this is where they would find the success that they had been chasing for over 100 years. And welcome back to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. This is your host, Letitia Wong and Melissa Chalou. And today we have a marvelous guest um, who is the, I guess, the creator of the Online Apologetics Conference for Christian Apologetics, and his name is Anthony Horvath, and I hope I said your name, your last name correctly. Yeah, yeah, a lot okay, better great. than a lot of people have over the years. I mean, you said it right, so there you go. Oh, I'm glad. Oh, that feels good. Um, and so tell us a little bit about uh, the conference, first of all and why you chose to focus the conference this year on abortion and apologetics. Okay. Well, the the idea for the conference um, goes back many years now. This is our fourth annual one. Uh, and I was looking for a way to connect people, um, and technology is a increasingly good way to do that. Um, it's always nice to be able to meet face-to-face with people, but there's a lot of reasons why we can't always do that. Um, you know, there's gas and fuel and tickets and schedule, you know, just any number of um, of things that can prevent us from going someplace where we'd like to go. While the Internet allows us to bridge those concerns, and it didn't take too long of thinking through how to do that that I came up with a conference idea. Now, um, every year, in line with some of the other things that we emphasize with the Thanatos Ministries, um, we choose some kind of theme um, to use as as an emphasis, um, or maybe I should say a prism. So we could just do just straight-up apologetics, and some of our, our sessions are like that, but I've thought it more useful um, to think about, well, what can 
what can we add? What can we do uniquely through our organization that maybe nobody else is doing? And one of those things that I settled on was trying to think of ways to apply those apologetics. So one of the things that we emphasize is apologetics through the arts, such as literature. So we did that the first year, just literary apologetics. And then we did a theme of um, uh, strengthening the family. And now this year we're talking about life issues and trying to connect apologetics in the Christian worldview to how we would, uh, would approach life issues in particular. And, you know, I, I don't know how often that's been done. Um, I suppose it has to have been done somewhere. But uh, it was something that was um, important to me, and I thought its time was right. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know how often it's been done either. I would like to see it done more often. Um, have So what is your personal interest? Now, we're, we'll get into this uh, a little bit more, the, the conference, but what is your personal interest in the topic about abortion and, and I guess, more broadly pro-life apologetics? Sure. Well, I remember back in college, it was presidential election for uh, between Bill Clinton and, and the first George Bush. And uh, as a as a young, uh, fairly liberal um, Christian setting to be a pastor, um, I saw abortion as one out of any number of issues that could be important in a presidential election. It was not. I was one of those persons who didn't think you should go all one issue on it. Um, but I was pro-life. I considered myself pro-life. And then as time has gone on, I have come to, to understand – this is – I'm speaking all personally now here. I've come to, to understand how so many other issues are wrapped up in the life issue where you might think that they're not connected, but if you get that one wrong – it's like a cascade of dominoes. A lot of other things fall as well. And the real catalyst for me in um, in having that come into focus was when my daughter was diagnosed in the womb at the 20-week ultrasound with spina bifida. And not more than a minute or two after that being confirmed, the doctor asked us if we wanted to abort her. Okay, so we instantly rejected that. I mean, that, that, there was no question in our mind about what we were going to do at that moment. Um, but then, after sort of the, the grief wore off of that, that situation, I began to think about how remarkable it was that so closely after being told the diagnosis, we were given the, quote, choice to abort her. And I, I just thought, based, based on the level of information that we had on the condition and the situation, if it were not for the fact that we were Christians and had, had already um, established a, a firm foundation for our beliefs, we would have done something quite differently. So, um, through researching that, then, I came to discover um, statistics that I never had really, I don't think I'd ever been aware of them before. Uh, I'm sure they are out there, but they just they hadn't registered with me, and that's the fact that anywhere between 60 and maybe even 95% of all children in this country diagnosed with a birth defect are aborted, and I was really staggered by those numbers. 
and then here's the real kicker then. Through my research into that, I came to discover that those statistics are not an accident. If you go back and you look at the strategy adopted by the eugenicists coming out of World War II, they specifically determined that they would no longer be able to use government coercion to eliminate the unfit. Instead, they adopted a, a strategy um, expressed by a eugenist by, by the name of Frederick Osborne for um, voluntary unconscious selection. And the bottom line was to get people to abort their unfit children and have them think it's their own idea. Mm. And that's what they've been doing very effectively, as as indicated by by the stats. And uh, now one thing has led to another. And um, today I, I can see very clearly two things. One, um, the life issue really touches on every other issue that you might want to have. And two the fact that I had a solid, well-established um, Christian worldview overrode everything else. And it's the people who who don't have that worldview or haven't thought about it or are just shell-shocked at the moment and almost taken advantage of that they're at risk. So there's a direct connection between us knowing what we believe and why we believe and literally, possibly, the life and death of the most vulnerable people who have ever existed. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, before I ask another question, I want to see if Melissa has something she wants to ask. No, um, I'm just excited to learn more about the conference. And um, Anthony, um, as far as um, uh, you explain us how you became passionately pro-life, um, what what caused you to um, want to bring this issue um, in the form of this conference this year? Well, I I think it was just. So every year I pick out a theme. And so this year, um, as I was thinking through different themes, um, it just occurred to me that th- this would be very appropriate, and it was it was in line with um, some of my growing understandings into what I would call the culture of death um, to have mm-hmm. this particular conference this year. And it, it won't be a you – know, this emphasis will always be part of my ministry. But it may not always be the theme for my conference, um, but it's definitely going to be something that I'm always going to be doing, trying to incorporate my apologetics into my pro-life activities and vice versa. Right. Mm-hmm. How important is it for, for Christians in particular to focus on pro-life apologetics? I know that I'm assuming a lot of things that, number one, if you are a Christian, then you ought to be pro-life, um, and a lot of people actually um, disagree with that. <laughs> And which I'd like to yeah. get to. Uh, I'd like to get to that too. Um, <clears throat> how important is it for a person who claims to be a believer to also have a fully formed pro-life ethic? Personally, I think it's vitally important. And in one sense, it's important just uh, in the realm of you should have a a well thought out worldview. I mean, just as it's just your duty and your responsibility. You know, if you're going to say that the Bible is your source and norm, well, we have a passage in Second Corinthians: "Take every thought captive to Christ." I mean, we should be thinking about everything, all of the time. And I would contend that if you have that approach, it would be very difficult to not have a pro-life 
perspective and be Christian because the I think the a biblical understanding really entails that. And so I think what happens is a lot of people um have these little boxes, compartments, and they've got their their religion or their faith and they have that in the Sunday box. Mm-hmm. And then they have they have their politics box and they have different ways of thinking about what they're going to put in their politics box. And, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And one of the, those boxes, ironically, is the maybe a sub-box of the Sunday box. It's the um, the church's mission is only to preach the gospel. And everything else is sort of um, adiaphora or your personal opinion or your politics or, or whatever. And I think and I, <laughs> I've, had, um, I've had pastors tell me that can you repeat that? Uh, kind of broke up just a moment. Pastors tell me that they don't believe that the church should take a strong stance on pro-life issues, not because Christians can't be pro-life or shouldn't be, but because they believe. All right, hold on while we have some technical difficulties. Hey, Anthony, if you can hear me, you are breaking up, and I would really love to hear your answer. So if you could call back, maybe when your phone is a little clearer, because I'm not reading you at all. Melissa, are you having trouble hearing him? Or is it just me? I guess it's me. Okay. Um, I apparently we are having technical difficulties. If you hold on, then we will try to get back our show. Hold on.
And are we on? Melissa, can you hear me? I can barely hear you. You're very breaking up. Hold on. Uh, let's see if uh, I can put some music on and see if we can figure this out. Hello? Can you hear me? Okay, hold on. Because I can't very well hear you. <clears throat> and pardon the pounding. I have roofers on, I have people working on my roof right now. Isn't that fun? On top of everything else. <laughs>
and we are still trying to deal with our technical difficulties. We didn't end the episode yet, so I think we're still on, but we are having problems hearing anybody on the line, including myself. So I'm going to keep going and see if anything, I can hear anything online. Well, I'm online, but I I can't. Uh, hello, I'm I'm not on here. That's weird. Not on the switchboard. I have no idea. I'm, All right, I I guess I am still here, and I will be trying to deal with this still for the umpteenth time. Hold on. No music. I don't hear anything. Melissa, can you hear me? None of my buttons work. Hello. Hello. I can I can hear you, but you're breaking up on my end. I cannot hear you very well. Can you hear me? All right. I cannot I cannot hear you very well. I can hear some noise, but is your voice breaking in and out? But I can't hear you. Oh, you can hear me well. That's nice. <laughs> okay, I'm my buttons don't work. Isn't that nice? My buttons don't work. Hello? Yes, it's very static. Hello, can you hear our guest? Troy? I'm not Anthony Mitchell. Okay. Um, can you type on? Can you type me the message? Because I cannot hear you. Um,
Well, continue the show if you can. I certainly can't hear you, uh, but maybe the show can. I don't know who can hear me. Let me see. Um, Let me see if my buttons work. My buttons are not working. Hold on. Hold on. Hey, Thomas. Thomas, we are having technical difficulties. We are having many technical difficulties. So what I'm going to do is I I can't hear you at all. Right. I think I'm going to end this show. I can't really hear what you're saying. And the best way to continue, um, is to message me because I really can't understand what anyone is saying. There's a lot of static. Um, are you there, Thomas? Are you there? Okay, I cannot hear it at all. Everybody's on.
Melissa, are you on? Yes. I can almost hear somebody. I'm here, Alicia. All right. Uh, is the show still going on? <laughs> yeah. uh, I still, yeah, it's very uh, staticky, and I can't log back in to the switchboard for some reason. Oh, 